Amen and amen. Well, if you would please take your seats and turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to 1 Kings in chapter 17. We'll read the whole chapter to the praise of God. I plan just to preach from the first seven verses this evening, but we're going to preach from the whole chapter because I see it all tied together by the trustworthiness of God's Word. And I want you to listen to that as we read the passage together. Listen for um, the signposts of the trustworthiness of God's Word as we reach, read through the passage together. Let's pray together now this evening. O Lord our God and our Father in heaven, You are the great and everlasting God. Before the mountains were born, you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And you have set your word above the heavens, established, heaven and earth shall pass away, but not a jot or a tittle shall pass away from your law, O God, until all is fulfilled. And we ask you this evening, our Father, to come and to drive home to each heart here, young and old, the trustworthiness of Scripture, that we might learn to trust the Word of God in the mouth of the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament and the Lord Jesus in the New. And we offer these prayers tonight, O Lord, that you would save the lost and restore the backslider and build us all up, O God, in faith and humility and love and wisdom and character and that we would be men and women of conviction and courage, standing on the Word of God and saying with your servants of old, this far, here I stand, I can do no other. And we offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Please listen carefully. This is the Word of God. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan, And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook, and after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake. Of it, bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. 
And she went and did as Elijah said, and she, she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid on him on his bed. And he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again. And he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Notice, now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. So can you really trust God? That's always an issue. It's not just an issue. It is the issue for the people of God through time immemorial. It's an issue in our day and it was the issue in Elijah's day. And in the northern kingdom, at least, the answer was, no, we aren't so sure we can trust Yahweh. We're not sure we can trust the Lord. We need a new God, and that new God was Baal and his royal consort, Ashtoreth. Now, there's a certain appeal to idolatry. There always is. Uh, Baal was the god of sex and of storms, which roughly translated means he was the god you wanted to have if you liked some fun and if you liked to farm, right? He was the god of pleasure and the god of prosperity. And in those days, of course, the idea was that, that the gods were local deities. There were gods in different places, the gods of the lowlands, the gods of the highlands, the god of the sea, and so forth, the gods of the dry land. But there was no god who was god everywhere. And when Israel came up into the promised land and they began to meet the Canaanites, they kind of heard this evangelistic witness. If you want to do well here, you've got to have our gods. I mean, the, the ancient Near East isn't always um, known for its rainfall, and our God, if you want rain to fall on your crops, our God is the one you want to have. He is the storm God, and He's also not just the God of storms, but He's also the God of sex, and the two go together like water and wet, no pun intended. But um, as you go down into the, the unholy shrines and um, cavort with Baal's holy whores, basically um, Baal and his, his consort Ashtoreth watch this display of earthly pornography, and it kind of in, in, encourages them to get together, as it were. And the resulting storms are the uh, climax, as it were, of their lovemaking in heaven. And so it all had a kind of certain logic, if you like that kind of thing, and the men in Israel certainly seemed to like that kind of thing. And so they gave in to the God of pleasure 
and the God of prosperity. Now, before we laugh at these knuckle-dragging Jews, we should also remember how easily you and I are taken in by the gods of pleasure and the gods of prosperity in the world. If you want to get along in the world, the devil says, there are certain things you have to do. And one of those things is not trusting God. You've got to remember that you've got lusts to be satisfied, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. This is the way the world works. And, and you've got to think that way and live that way if you want to get ahead in the world. And if you want to have fun and if you want to have a, a kind of a prosperous farm in modern parlance, of course, in modern business, you've got, to, you've got to go along with the gods of the world. Don't trust God. Take matters into your, mo- your own hands. And that was kind of the logic in Israel's day, and it's the logic in our day, and how easily we are duped by it. How easily Christians are, are duped into to gorging themselves on the latest Netflix period drama, which is soaked with sex. But if you're bored, and boredom's a bad thing, what, what, is, there not a more, is there a more fun way you can imagine to spend an evening, perhaps? That's the logic of the devil, and it actually sounds pretty similar to the logic of Baal back in the days of Israel. But there's a problem. There's always a problem when it comes to idolatry. When it comes to Baal, you've got to remember that he is dead, D-E-A-D, and choosing a dead god is a bad strategy for finding life. And as you read this chapter, you'll see at least a couple of incidences that the God of Israel is called the living God, like in verse 1 and verse 12. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. And then in verse 12, the woman who as yet I don't believe she is a believer, she knows Elijah is a prophet, and this would have been a way of speaking in those days, but of course the writer of Kings is co-opting her uh, language and displaying the fact that she says, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in the jug. That's the thing Yahweh does. He's the God who lives, which is the very thing Baal doesn't do. He's not the God who lives. He's the God who is dead. And that's interesting. Um, That's interesting, I think. God is alive. And that's something you want to know as you're living. As we'll see at the end of the chapter, it's also a rather handy thing to have in your top pocket of your soul when it comes to meeting the last enemy, death. The last thing you want to do is to meet death with a dead God. You need to meet death in the power of Yahweh's life, and only then will you find a love that is stronger than death. So the question is, can you trust God? And when it comes to trusting, trusting the person of God, the big lesson of 1 Kings 17 is that you've got to, to learn to trust the pronouncement of God. You can't see the person of God. He very rarely, at least in biblical times, and even more rarely in our times, makes Himself visible in His person. But He is always audible in His pronouncement, His Word, and we trust His person by trusting His pronouncements. That's the essence of the life of faith, as Paul tells the Romans. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the 
word of Christ or word of God, depending which textual tradition your Bible follows. Now, the first thing, and this is kind of a repetition from last week, I apologize for that for those of you who learn every, every lesson first time. But it is, it is useful, I think, to remember, remind ourselves of this. The first thing we learn about God is that you can trust His pronouncements of judgment. As Ralph Davis, and most of my preaching from the Old Testament has been deeply scarred in a way that hopefully makes it more beautiful by the teaching of Ralph Davis, my Old Testament professor. He, he made these books come alive, and I find his shadow following me everywhere I go. But he would say in class, you know, boys, God is faithful, and it'll kill you right? We think of God's faithfulness in terms only of His promise of eternal life, but God can also be trusted in His pronouncements of judgment. And you see that in the opening verse of um, 1 Kings 17. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, it's interesting, right? In the next verse it says, and the word of the Lord came to him. I, I'm not persuaded. I, th I think verse 2 represents the first time the prophetic word of God came to Elijah. So, how did he know verse 1? Well, he knew, he knew verse 1 because he had read this thing you have before you this evening. He had read the, the written word of God, and he believed it and so, if you turn back, you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 28, and in this, the end of Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomos, the second giving of the law, um, you remember as Israel are entering the promised land, you have these um, lists of cursings and blessings that are read out in the hearing of the people of God. And in verse 1 of 28, you have, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all, the ble all these blessings shall come upon you. And he, he talks about blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the fruit of the, your womb, and he goes to all these blessings from, from verse 2 all the way down to verse 14. But there's a but, verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall overcome you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be, shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you do and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until He has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever, inflammation, and fiery heat, and with drought, and with blight, and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish, and the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed, and so forth and so on. And that's, that's the covenant curse of God, and God promised there 
If you forsake me, if you disobey me, if you worship other gods, there will be consequences in this world. This worldly con- this world will there will be consequences of drought and by inference, famine. And we said last week, I don't think Isaiah heard the voice of God. He read the voice of God, and he believed it. And you think, well, why would he believe those threats? And the answer, of course, comes in the previous chapter, in the, the last verse, that throwaway verse, as Ahab is sinning left, right, and center, and winning the evil reward um, beating his father, who was particularly evil, and Ahab was even worse. And then you remember as he provokes God to anger, and then those last verses, those throwaway verses. Oh, by the way, verse 34, in his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Right? Um, And you can read that at the end of Joshua 6. When they destroyed Jericho, God said, this threat that you you will set up its foundation at the cost of your firstborn, and you will set up its gates at the cost of your youngest son. And God's word came true, that threat. And I, in the context of First Kings 16 and 17, I rather imagine Elijah, the faithful man of God, was reading his paper that morning, and he reads the news of, of the obituaries. And he hears this man, this, this land developer, heel of Bethel, who is building and developing the city Jericho. And he hears the news of his firstborn and his last-born sons dying, and it reminded him of Joshua 6 and the promise of judgment. And he realized that God's Word can be trusted. He looked in his Bible back to Deuteronomy 28, and he realized that if God's Word can be trusted in Joshua, it can be trusted in Deuteronomy, and it can be trusted everywhere. And he, he steps out in faith, and he, he, he and, and, and you remember in James, he says that Elijah prayed that, the, that the, the heavens would be shut, and they were shut for three and a half years. Why would he pray? If God had said to him in audible voice, the heavens will be shut, Elijah would have had no need to pray. No, he prayed because he read his Bible, and he came to his Bible the way you and I do at times, whenever there's some terrible affliction comes into your life, and, and, and you go to Romans 8, and you say, Lord, somehow make this work out for my good. Remember your word, O God. Or you feel abandoned in some instant in your life, and the darkness surrounds you, and you go to Psalm 139, Lord, even the darkness is not dark to you, and night is as bright as the day. And Jesus, you've promised me you'll be with me always, even to the end of the age. Lord Jesus, don't abandon me. Remember your word, and it's done. And Elijah was just like you. That's what James says. He's a man like you. And he went to his Bible, and he read his Bible, and he took what he read in his Bible, and he offered it up to God in prayer, and it was done for him. It's an act of astounding faith. And as I said to you before last week, that wasn't the first time this young man, or older man, we don't know, he just suddenly appears, trusted the Word of God and found it to be true. But you can trust the pronouncement of God's judgment 
Now, <coughs> if you read the book of Deuteronomy, you'll realize there's a worse thing God can do than simply take away rain. He can also take away His Word, which is exactly what God does. Notice the bearer of Yahweh's Word, the one and the Word of the Lord came to him. He's the one man in all the land who has the Word of God. He has, as it were, boys and girls, the, the magic cell phone to talk to God. And what happens? God's Word to him in verse 3 is, depart from here and turn eastward and essentially hide yourself. And then many commentators think that God was doing that to protect Elijah, but Elijah in the next chapter is going to go into great danger in standing against Baal and Jezebel and Ahab and all the prophets of Baal. No, this wasn't God working to protect Elijah. It was simply God working to take away the Word of God, a worse famine. Ralph Davis says, Elijah's role in this story is that of an office bearer. Elijah functions in his capacity as the bearer of Yahweh's Word. When he vacates the premises at God's direction, it's not as though just any Tom, Dick, or Harry or Azariah is disappearing. Instead, the bringer and bearer of the Lord's Word is withdrawing from the people of the Lord. The disappearance of Elijah spells the absence of the Word of God from the life of Israel. Israel's judgment is the drought of the land and the silence of the Lord. The drought of the land and the silence of the Lord. And I'll never forget when I was in class at RTS, Dr. Davis actually was preaching in 1 Samuel 3. Now, the, the, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And Dr. Davis leant over the podium in the class and said, Now, boys, he said, you've got to remember this. Don't, don't ever think that just because you have hermeneutica or logos or Hebrew and Greek Bibles and translations coming out your ears and Calvin and all the commentaries, that the Word of the Lord might not be rare in your churches. There is something that happens when God's Word is preached and it, it, it happens whether it's felt or not. God's Word is preached and never turns to him void. But there can be a famine for hearing the Word of God even in the midst of the New Testament church of God. When she turns away from God, when she compromises her faith, the Bible can be opened and read, but that sense of the voice of God coming down amidst the people of God can be absent. And the power of God's Word can be removed. And it's happened again and again in the land. You go to churches in this land and in this town even, where they, they deny Christ, they deny the gospel, they deny the resurrection, and they may read the Bible, but there's no living Word in those services. And it's, it's the most profound judgment the Lord can ever do to people is to remove His Word from them. Remember Saul at the end of his life? 
In 1 Samuel 28, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when the Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. He was left going to the witch of Endor, and he didn't get a living word. He got a word of death, his own death. What a terrible thing for the Lord not to answer us. Or in Amos, you remember, Amos chapter 8 preached that last year. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And you know, some of you young people, God doesn't have to take His Word away from you. The judgment is you never think to open it. The famine of God's Word is entirely self-inflicted. It should be unthinkable to live a day without opening the Word of God for direction. And yet, how many of you young people, how many of you older people, inflict upon yourselves a famine for the Word of God simply by not reading it, or simply not by coming to hear it when the Word of the Lord is opened and preached by Kyle or by myself or other men in this pulpit? And one of the lessons of 1 Kings 17, that if you ignore God long enough, He will simply stop speaking to you, and He'll remove from your pulpits men who preach the Word of God with a sense of power and divine efficacy. Do you believe the threat of God's judgment? And the Bible's littered with it. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that he will also reap. Do you believe that? Remember Lot's wife. We believe the comfort of God's Word, but we should also believe its threats, the pronouncement of judgment. Secondly, you can trust His promise of provision. Elijah sent away, and evidently there were no 7-Elevens near the brook Cherith. But you see the strangeness of God's ways here, and, and you'll see that through this whole chapter. First of all, you see the strangeness of God's ways of provision he commands ravens. I have commanded the ravens to feed you. Ravens were unclean birds. What kind of meat do you think they brought Elijah? Meat he had to cook very thoroughly indeed. There was no medium rare roadkill on Elijah's, uh, Elijah's menu. He'd been burning that to almost black, whatever meat they brought him. God's strange ways bringing him this food day and night, morning and evening, through these unlikely, unclean beasts. And the second thing you'll see in this chapter, not just the strangest of God's ways, but, but there are always obstacles for God to get over. God's a, a God is, you might put it, as William Still says, He's an athletic God. He likes to create obstacles for Himself to get over, right? 
And the first obstacle is verse 7, after a while the brook dried up. Well, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. There's no rain, and the, and the water dries up. God could have allowed, the, the, could have supernaturally sustained the river, but He didn't. It dries up, and it ceases, and Elijah has to move on, but he moves on at the direction of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow to feed you. Now, here's more strange ways. Widows weren't exactly paragons of provision. There was no welfare state in those days, and there were no men to provide for them, and widows were famously poor and barren individuals. And this woman was no different. She was on the verge of death. She's she's going out to gather sticks, to build a fire, to cook her last supper. And it's vintage Yahweh. God sends His prophet here to be fed and nourished. But she's also not just an unlikely woman being a widow, but she's an unclean woman being a Gentile. Zarephath stands about eight miles south of Sidon and about 13 miles north of Tyre, which is about 80 miles north of Samaria, which is slap dab in the middle of um, the domain of Jezebel's daddy, Ethbaal, from the previous chapter. right in the middle of Baal's domain. And one of his servants, his widow lady, is half serving to death, half starving to death. What's that tell you about Baal? He's not the kind of master you want to serve, right? He doesn't take care of the widows, which is exactly the reverse of Yahweh. He is the God of the widow and takes care of them and provides for them. But she's an unclean Gentile lady. And that's a subtle rebuke against all of Israel. Remember Jesus, when He goes to Nazareth, no time to go there now, but He hints at that. Why did He not send send Elijah to a Jewish um, widow? There were plenty of them in the land in those days. And the people of Nazareth knew exactly what Christ was getting at, and they rose up to kill Him rather than listen to Him, which is a normal response from God's people when they bring, when they hear the voice of God's prophet. vintage Yahweh. And Elijah asked her for some water, which is fine. But then as she's going to get the water, he says, bring me some bread too. And that seems kind of cruel because she says to him, oh, God, I've got no bread. There's nothing left in the larder. I've got a handful of flour and a skiff of oil, and I'm going to make pancakes too, one for my son and one for me, and you want one of my pancakes. And then Elijah comes, and he comes so tenderly with that most common of God's commands in the Bible, don't be frightened. And do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. He's calling calling her to step out into faith. Step out in faith. And stepping out in faith is always, it's not just stepping into the darkness. Stepping out in faith is not stepping into the darkness of what you hope God might do. Stepping out in faith is stepping into the light of what God said He will do. Faith trusts God's Word. The most important word, perhaps in the whole chapter, verse 14, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. You can trust God's promise of provision. And it's wonderful, isn't it? Because it's the life of faith. She doesn't go back to the house, and she doesn't see like 50 or five 50-pound bags of flour leaning up against her shed. Now, every day she goes, to, she goes at supper time to her little um, plastic Tupperware flug of, jug of flour in her um, pantry, and there's like a little bit of flour left, and she scoops most of it out, and she puts it out into, into, the, into her cast iron skillet, and she makes pancakes that evening, and goes, what's going to be for breakfast tomorrow morning? There's not much left, and she goes back the next morning, and there's just enough left for two more or three more pancakes. And it's all gone. And then supper next night, she comes back and there's just enough for three more pancakes. And the next morning, just enough for three more pancakes. And it goes on like that day in and day out. And she's left every day with a perpetual reminder of God's promise and God's provision. And yet still, the text does not say that she trusts God's Word. It's amazing how hard it is to bring an unbeliever to faith. Sometimes God will have to do all but kill you or even at times kill those near to you to bring you to faith. It's the last thing we'll ever do is trust God. Like the man hanging from the cliff, you remember his fingernails, you remember in the, in the old story, and he cries out, is there anybody up there that can help me? And the voice comes from the heavens, let go and I will catch you. And he says, is there anybody else up there that can help me? <laughs> the last thing we want to do is put our trust in God. It feels too vulnerable Going our own way, trusting our own machination. But she still doesn't trust the word of Yahweh. And then in verse 17, we have more strangeness. This woman who stepped out in faith, in a sense, and, and did what Yahweh said, and she, she is fed day in and day out. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. He's dead. And she says to Elijah, what have, you, what, have you against, what, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring to me my sin to remembrance. Who knows what that sin was? She knew. Memories, maybe she'd given her previous sons to Baal Akron in the Beelzebub and had them burned alive. Who knows? And the memory of those earthly abortions, if you like, would haunt her every day. Who knows what they were? Her own sin, maybe, at the, at the holy shrines. Who knows what they were? But her sin was on her mind, and, and as her son dies, the, the, the dark hand of conscience says, your, your son died because of your sin. You've come to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. And Elijah it's interesting, he has is, he is, no word. God doesn't come and say, this is what's going to happen. This is what you must do. And Elijah instinctively brings this dead boy to God. Now, you must be careful here. We, we, we're too quick in the Bible to draw a connection from Elijah to us, right? 
you and I, we're not Elijah in the story, right? And Elijah is no longer in this world, right? Or Elisha, or Isaiah, or Amos. These old men of God died or were brought to glory in strange circumstances, but they're gone. Um, Paul is dead. Peter is dead. There's no promise of resurrection. Even the faith healers in our current life, you'll never see them. You'll never see Benny Hinn pray over a dead body. But Elijah is an earthly picture of Jesus. He says, give me your son. And if you've heard the the opera of Elijah is a beautiful part of that in, in that where the woman is just all stressed out and the music's passionate and panic, and then Elijah steps forward, give me your son, he sings. It's so beautiful. Um, and he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed, and he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Everyone knows who killed this boy. It was God. God is the one who gives, and God is the one who takes away. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah's persevering prayer. Three times he cries out. Three times Paul cried out for the, for the thorn in the flesh to be removed. It was not, but... Three times Elijah cried out, and the life is restored. And Elijah brings the child and brought him down upon the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah says, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God. Now I know that the word of the Lord in your mouth it's truth. And I think that's what God was doing. He was stretching this woman and bringing her to a breaking point so that she would trust Him. It's like Newton's famous hymn. You remember it? I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part.' Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my girds, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thine all in me. And the lesson of of 1 Kings 17 is not that if your son dies, or your husband dies, or your wife dies, or your daughter dies, that you can pray and God will raise her again from the dead today in this world. 
the great lesson of First Kings 17 is how far can you trust God? Can you trust Him to be true to His threat of judgment? Yes, you can. Can you trust Him to be true to His promise of provision? Yes, you can. Can you trust Him to be true even in the face of death? When you stand at the grave of a loved one and, and see all your earthly hopes being lowered down into the darkness of the grave, can you trust Him even then and even there? And the answer and the lesson of this great chapter is, yes, you can. You can trust Him. There's a beautiful story in, in, his, in the, the annals of Scottish Presbyterian history. Robert Bruce, not Robert the Bruce. He was earlier in Braveheart days, but Robert Bruce was a, a Presbyterian pastor. He lived from 1554 to 1631, and he resisted James VI, along with Andrew Melville and many other of the, of the Scottish Presbyterians. He was twice banished to Inverness, which is like as north as north can go in Scotland, a cold, barren, rugged place today. But back then, it was an awful, freezing, wet, cold, windswept place where the king sent his worst enemies. And he was banished there twice, once in 1606 until 1613, and then again from 1622 to 1625. And it took a tremendous toll upon Robert's health. At the end of his life, he was sitting at breakfast, and his daughter made him some eggs for breakfast. He's eating eggs, and he divined suddenly that he was dying. And he said to his daughter, I breakfasted with thee this morning. I'll have supper with Jesus tonight. And his eyes, his vision had failed him. He was, he was blind. And he asked his daughter to read the eighth chapter of St. Paul to the Romans. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as she read down the chapter, he got, she got to the end, where neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And he quoted those last words as she stopped reading them. And he said to her daughter, dear, he said, take my finger and put my finger on those last verses of Romans 8. He looked at her with his blind eyes and said, daughter, I die trusting these words. And with that, he gave up the ghost. Will you die trusting those words? Makes all the difference in the world. I was preaching last week to the the the, the, the family, church family at Briarwood, who just lost their pastor, and I was in Psalm 23. And speaking about God's two sheepdogs, goodness and mercy, that follow the flock wherever they go. And I said to them, none, nobody could know what was ahead of Doctor Reader on the road that day, but we know what was behind him. Goodness and mercy. And we know who was with him in the car, with his hand. I like to think, resting upon his servant's thigh, saying to him, don't be frightened, you're almost well, you're nearly home. And we know what lay ahead of him on the road. In one sense, death was there. But for God's servant, death was there not as the master, 
but as the servant. The only rule death had, had that day was to open the door of heaven and let God's servant home. And there's all the difference in the world, I tell you, when it comes to meeting death as servant or master. If he's the master and you come to meet him as the last eternal enemy, and as you meet him, he says, you are mine forever. Or you come to meet him as a Christian, trusting Yahweh's word. And he's an arthritic, broken back, whipped cur, he, like an old butler from one of the Jane Austen movies, reaching for the door of heaven and opening it up and saying, you are Christ's. And I have nothing to do here but open the door of heaven and let you in. And the question I want to leave you this evening with, if you can't trust Yahweh's word in life, what will you do when you come to die and you meet death as master? Oh, isn't there a better way to live and a much better way to die? Trusting Yahweh's word in life and meeting death not as master but as servant and lifting your eyes, and hearing the voice of God, I will make known to you the path of life. In my presence there's fullness of joy, and at my right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Those are words no dead God can give to you, only the living God, and the living power of God's living Son, the right hand of the majesty on high. It gives it takes a living God to give words of life to a soul teetering between life and death. And that's just the God Elijah knew, and it's just the God that you can know this evening. And you'll know that God as you trust His Word, and through that come to know His person. It's the God who made heaven and earth, and the God you can trust in life and in death. Let's pray together. Father, pray this evening, O Lord, you would teach us, young and old, to put our trust in Jehovah. We thank you for these stories. Long ago, O God, Elijah lived, but his God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we pray you will teach us to trust you. Your word is true. It's promises of judgment, and it's promises of provision, and it's promises of resurrection. The death will not have the last word over our soul over our body because of Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.